You're listening to a Big MX Radio Podcast. Brought to you by Arma Energy. Presented by Fly Racing, W Wheels, Bill's Pipes, Just One Helmets, X-Brand Goggles, Shades of Grey Custom Helmet Painting, Rhino Power Sports Supplements, Roy Borton Suspension, Watts Perfections, and Golden Tire. Simply the best, motocross and supercross news from around the globe. And now, here's your host, Brad Gephardt. Welcome to the Arma Energy Drink Big MX Radio Podcast Show, brought to you by Fly Racing, X-Brand Goggles, W Wheels, Just One Helmets, and Bill's Pipes. I am your host, Brad Gephardt, and with us on the line, we've got none other than Mike Young. Mike, how's it going, brother? Doing fantastic, Brad. Thank you for having me tonight. And thank you for joining us on the Big MX Radio Podcast Show here on BigMXRadio.com. I want to send a special thank you right now to Don Schneider, who uh, set up this interview. He's a huge fan of yourselves. You guys are uh, uh, loved ones, I'd say. Uh, He absolutely uh, speaks of you in the highest regard. I've obviously uh, been in contact with Don for a couple of months now, and uh, he allowed us to uh, get get this together and uh, and have a nice chat because uh, it's it's an important uh, chat to have. Uh, I'm glad you're able to join us, and uh, thanks again to Don. Yes, Don's a great guy. Don Don has uh, meant a lot to me. Uh, he is like family to me. He's been there before and after my injury, and uh, he's just got such a he's just such a real, true individual. Such a great, caring heart, and. Uh, He's always going to be part of my family, and yeah, I appreciate Don for this opportunity, Brad. Absolutely, uh, special thanks to Don. Now, uh, if if you could uh, regale us with the story of uh, your first encounter of uh, Don the Schneidlein Schne- uh, Schneider, um, what were your, your first impressions of him, uh, and, uh, and and a best story if you could? Oh gosh! All right, you know I can't remember exactly the first one. Don could probably tell you that. You know, as a racer, you know I've hit my head so many times, so many concussions that it's uh, it's hard to remember certain things until somebody refreshes your memory. But Don is uh, I, I remember and I recall Don being the photographer, and he beat all the four surf races. And and it was funny because he was a very very good friend of my nemesis Lance Mail, who's you know a really good friend of mine. And I always never knew what to think. I'm going, all right, is he my friend? Is he Lance's friend? So I couldn't really figure it out, but he was so genuine that, you know, anybody would take him under their wing. And he's just such a good person. And he's got a bunch of friends of his that uh, that are all, you know, buddies of mine and stuff now because uh, they all kind of live by each other, rode together, and just good people. But Don, uh, you know, Don would race at those races. He would ride, like, either the vet classes or something. So I'd, I'd see him and then... He would, you know, then he'd be taking pictures. And I was like, oh, how funny. I wonder, you know, what's his deal? Is he a professional photographer? So I didn't know. But he's just always just so sincere. And he always had nothing but good to say about everybody. And he really, 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 I could tell, was just a real true enthusiast. He just loved the sport. And he still does. I mean, he still does. He always goes all the races. But he's just a, he's a true motocross fan and rider himself. And he's a good good guy to have in your corner. Absolutely, one hundred and ten percent. I uh, I couldn't agree more. Don is one of those guys who, uh, uh, when set, when invested, he uh, he gives you your all. And uh, those are few, those are few and far between these days. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's true. He's he's a real he's a real deal. So he, you know, this day and age, it's really it's really easy to run across a lot of fake people. And you know, if the first intention is you're like, all right, is this guy legit or is he not? And Don, he's legit, 100. percent I mean, with anything he's ever done for me or with me, he's given me everything that he had to offer. And I just I appreciate everything about the man. For sure, and I know you had to have appreciated him uh, taking over the reins of the four-stroke nationals uh, through the, uh, I guess would say would say the uh, most prestigious part of your professional career. How how uh, how much did, did you appreciate uh, that series and uh, all the ins and outs of the four-stroke nationals uh, in throughout uh, Don's time uh, running them? Well, the thing the thing, Brad, that's crazy is you know I I raced since nineteen seventy four. And, you know, I've been in, I was in the industry a long time and I knew there was a change coming. You could just sense it and sense it and sense it. And no one ever knew to what extent the four-stroke thing was going to be, but we knew it was coming. So I thought it was a really valid thing to have. And what was really cool for me is I could go race six times a year and make the same amount of money, if not more, than I was killing myself racing every weekend you know, every single weekend of the year, trying to just scrap as much money locally or at the local supercrosses or the local nationals, wherever you had to go that you were called to go by your sponsors. And the Fortune National is fun. The people were just different. Uh, the competition was heavy. You had a lot of retired guys that came along and got into it. So it was a very diverse type of a place. But you'd walk away with all your limbs. You'd walk away not hurt most of the time. And you had a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, you you get roosted like you've never been roosted in your life. I mean, these bikes, these four strokes just stay roosted so that I come in bloody half the time. So little by little, I'd get a little smarter and put a little bit more protection on every weekend. But Don, you know, it's, it's cool how Don kind of fit into the thing because like I said, coming from me knowing him as a photographer, you know, he had a passion for it. And my dad was very, you know, very um, integral if that's the word I want to use, in this whole four-stroke thing because there were some people that ran it prior to my, my family or my dad, and they ran it back in, I think it was like 1990, 91, and 92, and then they wanted, you know, out of it, and so my dad took it over and changed it to the Sound of Thunder, and the series only then only had like a few races. They would have like uh, White Brothers World Four-Stroke, which was always humongous, big purses. You do the intermission race at the National at Glen Helen. You do the intermission race at uh, Hangtown. And then we would do the commotion by the ocean at Carlsbad. So there was, there was a few races. There might have been one or two more, but there was only a couple races. And it was really neat to see that because it was, it was some fun racing, good track, and you had all the spectators there to witness it. And you had some riders in there that, were pretty talented riders in their era that maybe never quite made it as a top champion in motocross or something, but they were in there. But you could see it evolving, and so I jumped on board of it, and my dad wasn't doing it necessarily for me to go racing. I was doing my own thing, and it just kind of worked out. And then, you know, when my dad decided he had enough of it, which I think was after I got hurt, so it was probably in 97, was probably his last year doing it, I think 98, is when um, I think I think my dad's last year might have been '98, and then Don took it over and kept it rolling, and it was neat. It was really neat to see it evolve before and after my injury, and 
And, you know, there is a good story about Don that uh, will always be the most special thing. And it, it'll probably always, it just will always be the most special thing. Is Don captured the last moment of me on a motorcycle. So Don is the one that actually captured the last shot of me on a motorcycle before my accident. So I always have those, those pictures as memory of that day, always. And it was all thanks to Don. And he didn't know if he wanted to give them to me. So and I said, yeah, you got to give me those. Man. I, I'm over that. I'm, not, I'm good. You know, I want to see what happened here. So, yeah, Don was that guy. So it was a very integral part of me recovering from, you know, from my injury. So pretty cool. Absolute. Uh, and, um, and, and that even the, the night of, of your, uh, your accident, uh, I believe uh, Don, Don paid you a visit. One of uh, um Wanted to make sure that uh, you weren't uh, by yourself. Yeah, you know what's crazy is that was a uh, that was pretty neat. Yeah, he's like I said, you know, he's got such a great heart. But yeah, you know, going through all. I mean, the first day it was an absolute. It was I don't even remember half of what happened, but you know, it's like a blur, and you just your life just completely changed. So you don't really know what's going on. And yeah, I remember briefly that that Don came in, and I think he might have been with somebody else too, but. Yeah, he came in and wanted to check and make sure, and I think he had to get through all kinds of security just to get in to talk to my wife and make sure it was okay to say hi to me. And so, you know, they had you all sedated and all that stuff anyways. But, yeah, that's a good person right there. Now, uh, let's uh, let's get into um, Mike Young, the motocross racer. Uh, where does it all begin? Uh, I'm calling a 909 area code. That means you're in Southern California. Uh, but uh, where, where did your fir- you first put knobbies into dirt? When did you first feel that exhilaration of uh, a motocross bike underneath you, pulling away from you as you stand on the foot pegs? Uh, paint that picture for us and, uh, and tell us how it all started. Oh, that's awesome. I think the passion started and the, the you know, the, the passion of it started at four years old. Um, my dad would, uh, my dad had a TM 400 Suzuki and he'd go riding it like Hollister and Carnegie up in Northern California with a bunch of his buddies. And dad would throw me on the gas tank and just ride me around for a little bit. And I guess I just, I, I remember briefly that it was awesome, you know, and I said, man, this is in my head. This is really cool. And I remember my dad knowing that there was a passion there that he could see a joy in and he wanted his son to, to experience this. We didn't, you know, at this time, we don't know where we're going to land. We just are going to start here. And dad bought me an MR50 in 1974 and I was five years old and he took me down to, uh, to this right down the street from our house to this little area. We had a real to real camera, uh, back in the olden days. It had, I don't know if it even had sound, but I know it was real to real. And mom was out there and a bunch of the neighbors and they had strapped on this funny looking helmet on me. And I think put some work boots on and long pants and took me over there on that MR50 and mom would uh, start it. Mom kind of had to show me how to do it. And it was just, it was classic because uh, there was just like a little path, like a, like a goat trail. It went in a big round circle. I can recall the oak tree smell and this is in Livermore, California, way up north. And, um, yeah, just uh, started riding, and before you knew it, uh, you know, figured out how to cruise around without falling over or stalling, and they just let me ride for a little while, and then 
from there, Dad took me, uh, I remember he took me from there to Carnegie Cycle Park, and uh, basically him and his buddies went on a ride, and he filled the gas tank up and said, okay, you ride right here in this little area, and then when you get ready to want to stop, just wave, and this lady, some lady that was sitting there waiting for all of them to come back, um, she'll come over and she'll grab me so you don't fall over, because I was too small, I couldn't touch the ground. So... I'm riding and riding and figuring dad's going to come back any minute. So no big deal. So I'll just keep riding. And when he comes, then he can stop me. I don't want this lady. I don't know how to touch me. <laughs> so I was kind of this little kid. So I rode and rode and rode until I ran out of gas and fell over. And then the bike was laying on top of me. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't crying. I just remember I was kind of like just shocked. I didn't know what to do, but it fell over and she come running over and are you all right? Yeah, I'm okay. You know, five years old and a little okay. kid and, she picked it up, took it over, put the kickstand down, and I just sat there and had a sandwich with her and some water, and my dad and all his buddies got lost. So it was hours before these guys came back. So it was kind of, that's, that's how I started off. And then my dad knew that uh, I would have to learn before he wanted me to race. Uh, you know, I'd have to learn some, some more skills. So he took me to a track up in the Bay Area called the Pal Track. And the Pal Track, we have many memories. There's many guys like, Larry Wasick, who was the top champion back in the day, Danny Cantalupi, um, Talon Volan, Tyson Volan. Um, oh, gosh, there was a couple other names that would bring out of my head. That, that, oh, Ricky Ryan, yeah. who won a Daytona Supershock. Privateer. So, Ricky Ryan, they all started at Paltrack. Yep, so Ricky Ryan. So, it was, it was cool. So, I started there on this little, like, TV little track that had some bumps and jumps on it, and I had some real-to-real video of that, actually. And my dad said he took me there a few times a week for six months straight and got honed my skills, got me dialed in, made sure I felt good. And he goes, all right, we're ready to race. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. So we go to the first race at the Powell track. Back then they have a rubber band start. They have a mini track for just minis all the way up to 80 cc's and then the big bikes are on a different track. And uh, my dad goes, well, you're not really a beginner, so we're going to start a novice. And I was like, no. So I'm crying, and I, I didn't want to race because I'm scared. I'm like, I'm not a novice. I'm a beginner. And he goes, nope, you're a novice. So he puts me on the gate, crying, and I put my goggles, they're like Carrera goggles, threw the goggles on and put my hands on the handlebars and still tears coming down, and the rubber band goes. So I just take off. And lo and behold, I won both motos in novice <laughs> and won my very first race. And have trophies and pictures to prove it. And from there, it, it started. And we raced every single weekend. It was it was unbelievable. So that was the start of, you know, that was the start of something that I never knew where it was going to take me. I had no idea. But I started in Northern California. And then we raced there until uh, 1980. Yeah, so 74 to 1980. I think right around 1980, 81 we moved to Southern California because that's where the competition was. We were up there, George Holland, all these big name guys were up in Northern California and the Volans, of course, and uh, a couple other guys, like a friend of mine, Sean Wooten, who was really fast in that day and Bobby Moore. And we were the fastest guys of Northern California. And we went back in like 1980 and 81. I forget which year it was. I think it was 1980 when Yamaha would give a bike to every winner of every class. And I was an 80 novice. And it was me against my buddy, Sean Wooten. And I remember there were so many riders that we had three divisions or four divisions. 
and they narrowed it all the way down to the final. So you had to qualify all the way to the final. And I was battling with Sean for the win, and he passed me on the last lap, and he won. I got second. He got the bike, and I didn't. I was so mad. Like, man, I had that one. So we had some fun times racing. And then Southern California, you know, it was a whole different world. This is where the mecca was. This is Saddleback, Escape Country, all these tracks that we'd come down and race for the NMA races. And they were just big tracks, big guys, fast people. And the media was all here. So my dad goes, if we're going to make it in this sport, we got to move down here. So we moved down here. And life changed. Everything changed, and it was uh, interesting. It was very interesting. It, uh, the level of competition was higher, and it took my game higher. I was riding more. I was riding every day. And, you know, after school, my dad actually had it set up when I was in junior high school to, uh, to get out in fifth period. I'd have somebody pick me up. So I had this guy, Joe Milton, or um, Richard Sands, who was a local pro back in that area who started a company with Paul Speed, who's race tech. Um, Richard Sands was his first partner. It was Sands and Feed Racing called ST Racing. And Richard would pick me up, or Joe Melton, they were both pros, and they'd pick me up every day after school, pick me to Saddleback every day, go out there and run two 30 or 40-minute motos, come home, do my homework, go to bed, do it all over the next day. So it was a different deal. But it was that's what you had to do to be on top. You know, you had to do that. So. And it just went on from there. I could tell stories and stories and stories, but I got my first sponsorship in 19, like first real sponsorship with Yamaha in 1982. Yamaha gave me five or six bikes. I got everything paid for. You know, I had all the expenses paid and I was riding for a gentleman named Mike Guerra, competition support at Yamaha. And it was, that was when it got serious. I got to be the poster child for Yamaha for their Yamaha brochures back in the day was like the coolest things. You remember those? I, well, I don't remember them. Yeah. If you had to get the remembers them. I, I can get, I can guarantee that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like, is this, uh, right around, like you're, you're right in the mix of things in SoCal with the, the Jeff Wards of the world, the Jim Hollies of the world. What was it like being young guys, um, living in and amongst that? Oh, it was rad. You go to Saddleback, and Jeff Ward was there all the time. Johnny O was there a lot of times, too, but not often because Johnny was from a different area. But you, you'd catch him out there testing. Bob Hanna would be out there during the week testing when he was on Yamaha. And, and um, um, yeah, it was every time you go out there, there's some legend riding the track with you. And it was, it was very humbling. You know, it was very humbling to see that because, you know, here I am growing up around Ricky Johnson and all those guys. And when I rode for Yamaha, that's when Ricky Johnson was on board. And so when we would test, it was myself and Larry Brooks and Larry was the big guy and I was just a little guy coming up and he, uh, we'd park right there and park next to Ricky Johnson and, and just sit there and BS with Ricky and Ricky and I are really good friends now, but it was like, he was like an idol. I looked up to him and, and David Bailey and, you know, and all those guys, they were, all just idols and it's just oh it was amazing back then so yeah i was very blessed to be a rider in that era and it was to be a rider in that era you're very blessed and fortunate too because you can look back because some of the most amazing talent was racing that i mean it was the fields were packed you had you know you go to a national and there was 30 guys on the line and 20 of those dudes were top pros and any one of those guys could win so it was just crazy and the same thing for me 
the 80 intermediate class was the same way. It was stacked with the Scott Browns, the Kyle Lewis's, the Mike Healy's, the, the uh, Paul Dennis's, the, the, oh gosh, the, the list goes on and on and on. There were so many guys. And so you'd line up on the gate and you better bring your A game. So it was pretty gnarly to be back in that era. And I think it, it, it changed the way we would train. It changed the way we looked at our, you know, at, at how we rode and, and how hard you trained during the week and how serious it had to be. It became a serious job. Hundred percent, and uh, <clears throat> so um, I gotta, I got, I gotta say, um, you had some pretty decent success uh, right out of your very first year uh, riding the one twenty five West uh, Supercross Series, twenty uh, first overall. Um, you had, like, you had to have uh, had some decent finishes. Yes, no? Yeah, you know what? That was tough. You know, that was those were tough years. That was back in the nineties, riding Suzuki's. And or on Yamaha's actually, I was in Yamaha that year. I think it was probably 1990. And uh, Clark Jones at Nolene picked me up. He wanted me to ride the Outdoor Nationals, and he wanted me to ride 125 West Coast and do the uh, uh, do the what was it? Um, oh, we were going to do the Mickey Thompson Ultra Cross. That was like our big deal. That was a huge deal back then. And uh, yeah, that was it. Was rough. It was very rugged because. I didn't have a lot of supercross. I was an outdoor guy. Back then, I was like CMC number one. You come to a CMC race, and I could win. And it didn't matter who it was. You know, I was just a fast outdoor guy. And then you get me in supercross, and I just, I think I puckered up and just got nervous. I mean, I could jump the jumps and build up, but I didn't have enough practice to go out there and run at the front. I mean, I'd win the day qualifiers, but you come to the night qualifier, and it was, I'd run fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, around there. And it was rugged. Like I said, we had so many guys, Brad, that you're just lucky to be making a nice, you know, event. And then I would struggle in the mains. I would either get a bad start, I'd crash, I'd run 10th, 11th, 7th, 8th, somewhere in there. It was a rough year, but yeah. you know what? You had to walk away with your limbs is what my goal was. Every weekend, I thought I'd be able to walk away from the track. Well, you're one of the only guys I know of that's uh, top 10 on a Kajiva. Oh, yeah, the old Kajiva. Yeah, and you know what? That was good times. So we rode that. I forgot. I rode that in Supercross, too. I totally forgot about those. Oh, my gosh, dude. Yep, we had – I started riding those in, like, 87 or 88, 87, 88, and 89, and then 90, I went to Yamaha. And, yeah, that was an interesting thing to ride a Kajiva in a Supercross race. <laughs> and trust me, I looked probably just as bad as I felt on one of those out there, but – you know, you were a fish out of water on a Kajiva and a Supercross event, for sure. Well, that's really cool. And that, that was back in the day when they would uh, mix motocross and Supercross events. Uh, looking at uh, the schedule, it looks like 7th in San Diego, 18th at Hangtown on a 250, then back on the 125 for, uh, uh, looks like you uh, might have DNF'd um, Saint, or, uh, Los Angeles, uh, although making the main uh, in 89, a uh, pretty decent year for you. How funny. That's cool you got all that information. Yeah, that, that was rough. And, you know, riding, I was only at that time on that 250 at the National in Hangtown. That's when, you name it, they were there. Magoo, all these guys, you know. There's, like, everybody's at this big race. Bailey, all these dudes. Or, no, that was after yeah. Bailey's accident. This was, that was 80. What year was that? What year? That That's 89, I think. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's uh, Lamps' first year on, uh, he was on, on Suzuki's. 
Yes, that was a couple of years after David's accident. So yes, that's right. And that was on our white. That was a white. Uh, that was our white Kajiva. The bike was a rocket ship. It was a handful, but it was a rocket. But I remember that. Just to get 18th out of those 40 guys was like a huge accomplishment to do that on a privateer bike. I mean, we didn't have a, we had a good Kajima, but we didn't have a works bike like those guys had. And like I said, there was a huge roster of guys and I'll never forget how hot and how rough it was. But yeah, and I wasn't really the, I was just a young kid, you know, I was just a young guy back then. I think I was, what was it, 17? Yeah, was like 17, 18. Yeah, I was 17 right there. I was 17 years old. And it was, it was mind-boggling. But it was, uh, it was one of those moments where when you're out there in those races, Brad, you're, you're too busy worrying about who's coming up behind you than focusing on your own race. You're like, okay, is Ricky Johnson going to pass me or Brock Lover any minute? And you're just looking around all over. And I remember Jeff Lee and a bunch of guys were out there. It was a pretty big turnout. But that's cool you've got those memories. Absolutely, it's all here in the uh, the motocross vault, uh, courtesy of, uh, of Racer X, and uh, always good to to scroll through these every once in a while and, and see some of the guys that you would have uh, banged bars with. Um, this sport, it uh, of motocross, it uh, it takes all, all a lot of us to a special place. It takes a lot of us to uh, somewhere where we can't quite explain. But it took you all over the world. Um, Tell us, if you will, uh, a little bit of uh, how you ended up uh, going over to Europe and, and traveling to uh, some some GPs and uh, and riding bikes like uh, like the Vertimati and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome! I love to talk about this. This is like my favorite part. Yeah, all the all the the stuff leading up to that is a blessing, a huge blessing. But getting to the point where you're getting asked to go represent your country and other you know in other countries was really cool and. It all started in 1988. I went to, to Australia and got to race the Supercross over there. Jeff Leaf, his dad, had a stadium that he would you know, fill up with a bunch of people. And, and we go over there and race. I got to go from there to South Africa. I got to go. I was Costa Rica Central and South American National Champion in 89. And uh, it, was, it was just so many trips I can't even recall. Finland, Sweden. Back then, they would ask you to go all over the world. Well, in 1990, uh, was it 1995, 1994, I was kind of in between what I was going to do. I was riding HPKs and, uh, for the Four Shop Nationals, helping them develop their bike, which at the end of the year, we got the bike so down in that it was just unbelievable. And then the series was over with. So kind of a bummer. Uh, but we ended it, uh, we ended it well, strong. And then, um, I was riding Yamaha's locally. I got a bike from Yamaha and I got a, another one from a dealer. And I was racing all the Transcal Golden State stuff down here, just making money. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. And being a magazine test rider, I was a full-time magazine test rider for Dirt Bike Magazine. And one of their European contributors, Stefano Padovani, uh, who I became really good friends with, he just, I don't know, it was kind of weird. I saw the bike in the magazine, and it was Joel Smith's bike. It had a big spread on his Vertimati. And I was like, man... To be a four-stroke guy like I am and to be able to ride that bike would be like a dream. That's a total dream. That never happened, but it's a great dream. And I have it on the wall, this big poster of that bike, number three, and I'm like, man, that would be awesome. So I didn't know, but meanwhile, I tell Ron Lawson about that, and Ron Lawson tells Stefano Padovani, who's best friends with the Vertimati brothers. And he goes, hey, this American guy is pretty fast locally. 
He's got a big name local, and, you know, a lot of people know him. Maybe give him a shot. You know, he's not out winning nationals, but he's winning the four strokes up. He's, he can ride a bike. And they go, all right, all right, send him over. So they call me up, and I just makeshift gear. I just throw some gear together. It's a makeshift of all the different stuff, different brands. I didn't really have, like, a steady sponsor at the time. So I felt like I was run whatever. I fly over there. Meanwhile, it's freezing cold winter, and uh, I can't do well in the, in the winter, but I was like, all right, you would not do well here. are so different from here, and the environment. Yeah, it's different, totally different. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm up against, but I'm gonna give it my best. So we tested for three days straight. We went to three different tracks, and I just I fell in love when I got on that bike. I fell in love with it. It was a little bit awkward at first because it wasn't set up for me. It was set up for Joel, and we have different riding styles. And I just I couldn't ride it the way it was. So I made the choice. I just you know, hunkered down and said, I'm just going to ride the thing. And so they, they had me on the clock, like, the whole time. And then they had, like, Alessandro Puzar and a few other guys who were out there those days, and they were timing them and timing me. And they're like, that's pretty fast. And I had no idea. I don't know any of these people. I don't know who I'm riding with. I don't know if this guy's a novice. I don't know if he's a pro. I don't know. I'm just, I'm passing some guys. There's some guys that are challenging me. I'm turning the wick up. And I ended up... Uh, they, when we were done, they said, we'd like to talk to you some more. So I go, all right, cool. I fly home. And within like a week, they had a proposal on the table and said, we'd like for you to come race the Italian Nationals. And then we want to do the, the whole 500 GPs. And I was like, okay. And meanwhile, I just get engaged. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be rugged. This is going to be so rugged right now. I don't know how I'm going to do this because I can't afford to bring my wife over, my, my fiance. And I'm like, this is going to be tough. Where am I staying? What's going to happen? I need somebody to speak English with me, someone that I can, like, hang out with. So they uh, they opted to, to give me a good friend of mine from ATK, his name is Cord Pearson, and they said, you can bring him along and he can, you know, do your pit board and help you get your goggles, everything ready, and he'll be like, you're psyched here. All right, cool. So that's how that all kind of came about, and it was a dream come true. I mean, it was honestly a dream come true. It was something that was on my wall, and I looked at it every day, and it ended up coming true. And and the story gets really deep from there, but it's, uh, it was interesting because you're going to a foreign country, you're riding tracks you've never ridden, you're working with suspension guys and people that don't really necessarily speak really good English, uh, you're going to, you're riding in, in environments that you've never ride in, like, you know, it's pouring rain, it's snowing, you know, you ride through all of that, and you're eating food that you've never eaten in your life, and you're going to other countries that don't speak any English at all, and it was very interesting to do that. And let alone here, you're just this, you know, there's like, there's myself and there's Travis Parker. We're the only two Americans in the 500 class. But over there that year, there was Talon Bowen, Bobby Moore, um, Jimmy Button, a good buddy of mine was over there. And Jimmy was on the 125. I think Bobby Moore was in the 250 with, with, uh, with Talon Bowen. And so we were all at different countries at different times. So we'd never see each other. The only person I got to really hang out with was Travis. And I made good friends with a couple of Kiwis, so Shane, Shane and uh, his brother, Daryl King. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. We had, we had some good times together. Absolutely. And on a pretty trick bike, I, I got to say, like uh, uh, titanium uh, full works, fork suspension, WP, uh, 
had that thing sprung unbelievable, I got to imagine. Uh, Brembo brakes, the, th the thing was off the hook, looked completely one-off. This bike was uh, something special. It was, and you know what? It's, it's crazy because it was a dream to ride that bike because to this day and age, it's still trickier than any of these bikes these guys are riding to this day. It had, it had complete billet cases that were hand-machined, CNC-machined off these mills over there, and the cylinder was made for them. The head was made for them. It had a gear-driven cam. It had a three-piece gearbox that you could pull the side cover off and change the gear ratios. It had a full billet swing arm that was milled out of full billet. It had uh, works Brembo brakes. It had special talent wheels with braking rotors. Um, it had a hydraulic clutch before anybody had a hydraulic clutch. It had one, um, which was hard to get used to. It was really weird. The, the gas tank was handmade by this Italian Indian guy that literally, he was an Indian. I mean, he wore like an Indian like clothing. It was crazy. He had like, just this trippy attire and he lived out of this little teepee and he just banged on metal. And it was the weirdest thing. And the brothers Vertimati, they literally built this motorcycle. Like it's not something you go and buy and put together. They built the frame. They had a hand tube bender. They would hand tube bend all the tubes. They would have all of them sent out powder coated. They'd all come back, have to measure, make sure it's all right. The whole frame was screwed together with titanium bolts. So the entire frame was bolted together. It was it was the most insane motorcycle ever. Um, I was <laughs> the fortune, most fortunate. And it kickstart was on the right side, and it kicked forward. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing you've ever seen. And the gear shifter was three gears up, just like my 1974 Honda Elsinore 50. It shifted the same way. All the way down was neutral. All three up was, uh, was you know, that's how you shifted. Well, the race bike I started out with was a five... Um, it was a 5.30, and it was pretty much a handful. It was hard to ride. It was made for really big tracks, and I didn't really like it so much. It even built me like the 6.12, and the 6.12, I started the year on the 5.30, did very well at a few of the races. Portugal, I ended up uh, like I think fifth or sixth overall for my first GP ever. It was amazing. I, I, even, I even almost led the race. Like I was in second place with Smith all over him, and I just, I got so nervous, I faded a little bit, but I got six the first race on that bike, and then the second race was um, the second race we ran in Austria. We ran the uh, the six twelve, and I made the major comeback. Came from way bad starts because I was having some issues with that bike just getting traction. It had so much power. It had seventy two horsepower at the rear wheel, and I could not handle it. It was just too much. So it ended up breaking second moto, and I had a good overall. I probably had a seventh race overall coming from literally. 40th place, both motos, dead last. So I worked really hard, got to the front, and it broke second moto, and uh, basically ended my day. But we came back in Switzerland with a 499, and the 499... Uh, second place in a moto. Yeah, I, I did really well. I did really well. The problem I was faced with was they, didn't, they weren't listening to me, but the bike wouldn't shift under power. You could not shift it under power. I have to get off the gas, have to shift it, and then gas it again. It was the hardest thing. And the start at that track was really short. And so you'd want to grab second like halfway and then just leave it in second and turn the corner and maybe grab third. Well, I couldn't shift. So I'm, I ran it first year all the way to the first turn. It was just de detonated itself to death. And then I shifted. But 
the second moto, I was running up front and I fell over in this corner and it locked the compression release on. And basically I couldn't get the bike to start and I didn't know the pressure release was locked. So I had to push the bike back, but I was running like third or fourth. It was crazy. And then they get back and the magazine goes, we want to test that bike. Cause they went and dynoed it. That 499 put out 65 horsepower at the rear wheel. It was insane. It was more than some of these bikes now. Still. Oh yeah. And anyway, that was back in that day, you know, carbureted and all that. So four valves, little, little thing. But anyways, I, um, the magazine tested it and the magazine goes, Hey, there's something wrong with the gear shifter. And they look at me and they go, Oh, we should have listened to you. And I said, yeah, it had a bent shift arm in it or shift board and it wouldn't shift. So it was one of those days, but I don't know. Life goes on. We went on, we went on and had an amazing year. We had, um, we did, uh, Czech Republic was probably one of my favorite races. I came from way back and I got third overall. And, uh, and, uh, just, that was just a remarkable moment. It was an amazing track, amazing experience. And then a few races later, we went to Chingali, which ended up becoming my last race that I ended up racing and finishing. Um, in the first moto, I came from about 28th, 30th to having a slot time all the way through the race. I reeled and reeled and reeled and reeled. And right about two laps from the end, I caught the leader and the leader's seat fell off, but I was already so tired because these are 45 minutes plus two laps. These are like an hour moto, and I'm already so beat from this that I've, I've rode so hard, got pelted so bad, that I just, I couldn't, had nothing left to catch him in the tank, and so he beat me by probably two bike lengths to the finish line, and I was bummed because the guy had no seat on the last lap, and I was like, man, I let a guy with no seat beat me, I was bummed, so the second moto, I was out for vengeance, and I get a great start, second moto, I'm running, what was it, probably third, fourth place, all I had to do was stay there, and I had to overall. Champus was out front. He DNF the first moto. And I said, I'm going to hang right here. So I come, there's a spot over there. They have tracks where they cross like major streets. And once in a while, they'll close it off, run some cars through or pedestrians through. And then they close it back off again and let the bikes go by. It's like crazy. And I came across this, this one section after the start. Come up the hill, you hit this like curb and you launch up over the, the road. Happened to be a spectator crossing the track and I tagged him with the front end in the air, and it just took me out, took him out. He was fine, but it took me out, and I landed on my knee and tore my ACL right out. It hurt so bad. So I went and watched the rest of the moto at the hospital, and I was pretty bummed because that would have been my first overall for a world championship. would have been the most amazing experience, but it didn't happen. And you know what? It was all right. And I tried to race a couple weeks after in France, and I just couldn't bear weight on it. I fell over, and there was just so much pain that it just I couldn't do it. So we drove there for nothing, and we drove home, and I just decided I'm just going to go home. So I left, and I was in sixth place in the world. And when I got home, Brad, after all of the, the last four races went through, or five races, I ended up 13th. So not a bad yeah. year for my first year, you know? Not not bad at all. And, uh, and then you would go on to uh, an East Coast four-stroke uh, championship bid, and uh, how'd that turn out for you? Uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a challenge, you know. That, was a, that, was, that whole 96 was a challenge of my faith and a challenge as a human being because it just seemed like no matter what I would do, I would, go, I would just, nothing would turn out easy. Nothing was ever going to be easy. 
Like God was giving me this like saying, telling me, Mike, nothing comes easy. You're going to put effort in, but I'm not going to give it to you. And that's how the year went. It was frustrating because I, I had my victories. I had my good performances. I was always consistent in the front. And then we just had a couple crazy things happen. We had the frame break in two pieces at one race because we, we wanted the bike to look really cool in Idaho. So we're leading the series. We got a good lead over second, which is Lance. And I just had to be consistent. So they nickel plated the frame. Nobody knew that it was going to brutalize the material. So I'm on this double in second behind Lance. And I just, you know, I was having a good race. I wasn't out to beat him. I just had to stay there. And uh, the frame is broken, too. The bike was in two pieces. I was like, well, that didn't end too well. Luckily, I didn't get hurt. But luckily, you know, we walked away from it. But it uh, didn't end well. But the rest of the year was kind of like that. It was up and down, up and down. We were battling with Lance every race. And uh, we'd win a moto. He'd get a moto. And he just inched up, inched up. And it came down the last race. All I had to do in Colorado was finish second and second. So I literally was just in limp mode. I was like, I'm just going to finish and be done with this and, uh, you know, get this championship that I worked so hard all these years for and just be happy. It didn't work out that way. So first moto, I come from a decent start. I passed a couple guys. I get second. Um, Lance had a good lead. I just want to stay out of his roost and let him do his thing. And second moto, same thing. Come out through the roost. I get second. I'm running in second. Last lap, I come around. I get the white flag. I get around and I go all the way to almost to the finish line and the bike starts to not run right. I'm all, what is going on here? It died like three corners from the finish line where these hills were. So I couldn't push it up these hills. It was impossible. I tried and uh, it DNF and that's all it took for him to win the championship. And so Lance won it. And I'm, Lance was the best, best sport. And, you know, he was the best kind of race against him. You know, I wanted to beat him bad, but it wasn't meant to be. And so I went to Chuck son who was my team manager at the time and I said Chuck could I go to the east coast and uh and give that a shot I have to win a title I didn't come home from Europe to to get a second place or to, to just wash my hands of this I came here to win and I was in the best shape of my life I'm all there's no reason I can't win and he goes all right let's do it so he got the funding from Rod Bush at KTM Rod said yep so I've had a mechanic all year. I still work on my own practice bikes and stuff. I'm a mechanic, Russ Fletcher, who is like my best friend who's passed away and gone to, uh, gone to be with the Lord. He's, uh, he'll always be remembered as just such an amazing man. But Russ, he wasn't able to go. They had him stay home and I had to do it all on my own. So I take two bikes that we built up at, up at, uh, Russ's house and I'm going on a goose chase to go race East Coast. I've never been to any of these tracks ever. I got Red Bud, English Town, I got uh, Birch Creek, I got all these tracks, um, this one in Kentucky that was amazing, Daniel Boone, and I go, all right, I got six races to go to, I got to go back there and I got I to gotta do something. I didn't know that Todd DeHoop was going to show up, I didn't know that Keith Bowen's coming out of retirement, I didn't know Gene Newmack's going to race, there's all these dudes that are going to show up and race, plus Kevin Walker, who's like East Coast local, fastest guy there ever is, and Mike Brown, who to top that off, you know, Mike Brown's a legend. And Brownie's going to show up. So I'm like, I'm just driving across country going, oh, this is not going to be good. But, you know, hey, this is where I'm going, so I'm going to give it my best. And you know what? It started off. I won both motos at at Birch Creek, and I was on a roll from there. I said, this is going to be, this is going to be an awesome year. And, uh, we ended up, we ended up getting a little close battle with, um, with, uh, Keith Bowen. And he gave me a lot of heat, and uh, he, he learned that torch up pretty quick, and he had the same bike that Lance Mail was running. 
and uh, that bike was no slouch. And I did this all on my own every weekend, had a great time, and met some great people back there, and uh, we ended up winning that sucker, and it was on my birthday of all days. It was on my birthday, so it was the coolest surprise, the coolest thing, and we won that at Muddy Creek where they do the national. So I, uh, I won that. I won the overall, and then I won the East-West shootout. I was the best guy from the West, so I won. And so I got two championships that one day. It was like, it was a cool day. It didn't start off all that easy, though, Brad, because I fell in the first moto while I was leading, and I fell over, and everybody passed me. So I had to pass back, like, Spud Walters. I had to pass back Walker. I had to pass back um, Brown, Mike Brown. I had to catch uh, Lance. I had to catch Bowen. And I forget, I think Lance won the moto. I think I caught everybody but Lance. And then Lance ended up hurting his foot, which kind of helped me a little bit. Uh, the rest of the motos because he wasn't as strong as he was, you know, without a hurt foot. But that race was just meant to be that series. I hurt my leg during it. I tore my ACL got stretched again. So I was riding hurt the whole time. I'm just going, why couldn't this just be easy? Never was, you know? So yeah, we went on and won that thing and got an AMA title out of it. So it was amazing. So that was a good, good, uh, good 96 for me. Absolutely. Like, uh, it sounds like you had some pretty heavy hitters that you're, you're, uh, you're dealing with. And it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see that, uh, you're, uh, you were pushing your bike to the line, uh, or across the finish line long before Ryan Hughes was doing the same. And, uh, there's a whole lot difference between, uh, pushing a 501, uh, rather than a 125. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a good one right there. Yeah. And I, you know what? I, I just, we came that far, you're not going to just walk away. You know, you're going to try as hard as you can. You're going to, you're going to get the bike across the finish line no matter what. And I had to, I had to do that. My first four-stroke championship in 92 on a Husky, I jammed the frame, or I jammed the chain in the frame at Carlsbad um, after this, this uh, the freeway, we called it. And then we have a little short heel, and then it comes around the back and over the finish line, jumps to the finish. And it's a long walk. I had to push that thing at 104 degree temperature after running 35 minute moto all the way around. So I had to finish the moto to collect the championship. And I, I, you just, you know, motocross, like you said earlier, motocross teaches you a lot about life and a lot about how not to quit, how to persevere, how to push through things, you know, injuries and pain and, and hard times and whatever it may be. It really teaches you a lot of that. And I think that comes out when you see circumstances like Rhino or circumstances like myself or anybody else that's had to do those things, you know, they just, they have to dig deep and that's what we got to do. Hey, this is Jared Steinke and we're going to commercial. We'll be right back. If there's one item to be picky about, it's choosing the right helmet. I'm Andrew Short and I choose the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. You too can wear the exact same helmet I wear, Trey Kennard wears, Jimmy Albertson wears, and many others. The F2 Carbon is a helmet loaded with details that make a huge difference in comfort and safety. Lightweight materials, phenomenal airflow, and a super comfortable sweat-absorbing liner and generous eye port design to accommodate any goggle choice are just a few. And did I mention how super trick these helmets look? Straight off the shelf and onto the racetrack. If you are looking for one amazing helmet, look no further than the F2 Carbon from Fly Racing. For more information about Fly Helmets and other products from Fly Racing, visit them on the web at flyracing.com. What's wrong, Jeff? I don't know, Jay. Well, you better fuel up with a nutritious breakfast with Oats and Bran. Oats and Bran? I didn't think there was such a thing. That's what I used to think. Now, I start out every morning with a bowl of Amigos. 
for extreme kids like us. That's what I call fueling for the big ride. Hey kids, start out every morning with a fat ball. When it comes to helmets, there is just one. The helmet brand that is. Just One Helmets is tailor-made for motocross and street bike riding, and now available in North America. Who chooses Just One? Well, for starters, Tim Geiser, winner of the Italian round in MX2, David Philipparts, Vicky Golden, Trevor Reese, as well as David Pulley. And you know what? So do I. I choose Just One Helmets because they are simply the safest, lightest, and most comfortable lid available. Want to know more about Just One Helmets? Check them out on the web at www.justonehelmets.com. Find out about the J12 the J32, and all of the colorways that are absolutely blow your socks off. So guys, please head over to www.justonehelmets.com today. Go check them out. You won't be disappointed. The 2014 X-Brand Goggles is back and better than ever. From the Scatter X, Volcano and Phantom Goggle, X-Brand has the product to make you stand out on race day. The quality of X-Brand products is second to none. Great lenses, incredible frame, and a strap that doesn't wear out. Great tear-offs, zip-off systems, nose guard, and more. Check out eksbrand.com for all of the accessories and pricing. WUSA is your one-stop shop for quality wheel sets in America. All of the best components built for the toughest conditions. Hit up WUSA.com, that's D-U-B-Y-A-U-S-A.com right now and check out the custom wheel builder selection. Pick your rims, pick your hubs, pick your spokes, even pick your nipples and see what it's going to look like on your bike. On the website, you'll drool over components like XL and DID rims, Talon and Kite aluminum hubs, Galfer and Brembo brakes, and spokes that take a licking and keep on ticking. The same wheels that you buy are built by the same guys we're building wheels for. Ryan Dungey, Jeremy Martin, Chad Reed, and the entire Geico Honda team. And I kid you not, they are not told whose wheels are whose, they just build amazing product. And I want you guys in a set of W wheels. So do what I did and head to WBYAUSA.com today. WUSA, all things wheels. What's up, guys? It's time to talk a little bit about Roy Borden Race. He's the performance specialist suspension, making a motor work, balancing a bike. 
or just maintenance, he's got the tools and know-how to make sure that your bike is ready on race day or practice. Roy Borden has strength in years of experience and the best technology and best tools at his disposal. Whether you're getting your forks redone, seals, or a full, full-blown rebuild on your forks or, or shock, call up Roy Borden today at 204-633-2722. Bill's Pipes, the home of legendary performance. Since 1974, Bill's Pipes has been providing motocross and off-road riders the performance they need. Two-stroke or four-stroke, Bill's Pipes has the exhaust system for you. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the Bill's Pipes brand, and that's great news. And that's great news for motocross racers everywhere. For four-strokes, Bill's Pipes brings the RE13 to dominate the fight on any brand. For you two-stroke guys, the MX2 Bill's Pipes exhaust system is the right one for the job and comes in works, nickel, and the all-new cone-look finish that'll turn heads all day long. Head to Bill'sPipes.com right now and get the same pipe used by Billy Lininovich, Vicky Golden, JMR Suzuki team, Jesse Pierce, Nico Izzy, and David Cole. Bill's Pipes is craftsmanship at its finest. So go with Bill's Pipes and never settle. Hundred percent. Now, uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the following year. Uh, you, you wrap up the championship in uh, in 1996, and uh, and then comes 1997. Um, what, uh, what what kind of deal did, did you have for '97? Uh, what what were all of the uh, the events that you looked to have hit? And uh, I guess uh, it all comes to uh, to a head at uh, at Glen Helen Raceway, where uh, you had your accident. Yeah, that's, you know, 97, it'll obviously be something I'll never, it'll be a year I'll never forget. My life was completely changed and turned upside down, but it was an interesting year because it started out really interesting. I mean, I was in the best shape of my life, ready to go, um, and I got, uh, I had an offer to go back to Europe and ride for Factory Husqvarna on a Works Husky in the 500 World Championships, and I was seriously contemplating taking that ride because I, you know, that's riding for factory Husseberg at that time, KTM or Husky was where you wanted to be. There was really no other factories participating in the 500 championship. And that Husqvarna was an amazing bike. The Husseberg was too, but those two bikes were the bikes that were the top of the field. Otherwise you'd be riding a 360 KTM, which won the championship the year before. So it wasn't a bad bike. It's just I didn't want to ride a KTM two stroke. I was like, eh, I want to ride a four stroke. So it started out weird. I had that option. I had a contract on the table from Lucerberg and I was out. It was really funny. I was out practicing on my 96 at Glen Helen. I'd ride there every Thursday and I'll never forget. It was right before it. It was right before some pretty good race and all these guys, factory guys were out there and Greg Albertine's a good friend of mine, a fellow Christian brother of mine, and we were out there doing some motos, and I just happened to be going through this roller section right in front of him. Like, he would crack up that I could actually beat him in a few laps, you know, on this big four-stroke, and then he'd get by me, and he'd slowly just pull away, and um, he'd just crack up. Some kind of production bike, the thing beat to, you know, the hill. 
Well, I, I hit this like whoop section and I'm going through it and all of a sudden the bike just stops and throws me over it. I land like three obstacles down. I'm like, what happened? He, meanwhile, had to navigate how to jump over my bike while it stopped because he was on me that close. It happened that just accidentally the rear swing arm broke and it was cracking and I was like, no, oh, this is weird. So maybe it's a faulty part. Well, uh, just KCM, who's a bird, got the wrong vibe for me and the way I went about it, I, I was very upset because I could have got hurt really bad. And I just was like, hey, this can't be, I can't be riding stuff like this. I need to be riding a bike with better quality than this. I need to do something really fast I could beat. And it didn't go over well. So they ended up pulling my contract. And I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't good. So now do I take the Husky thing? So I didn't know. So I was torn up till a week before the first Force of National. I didn't have a bike to or a ride. I borrowed the magazine bike that they gave to Ron Lawson, a dirt, dirt bike. I borrowed that bike, which was beat to the hill. I rode that bike just for a couple weeks just to, like, get used to a Husky or Hoosberg again. And I was like, oh, man, this thing is totally different than my 96. It was way different. So we did some suspension work as best we could with the time frame we had, and they gave me a ride literally the week before they said, you're going to be teamed up with Sean Kalos. And I go, oh, cool. Who better than Sean? He's great. And I'm like, all right, Sean hadn't even ridden a bike. They just said, you're showing up on a stock bike, and this is what you're getting. So Sean was like, all right, he didn't know any different. He's got on and put it. Well, I get the bike. I'm so picky. I want the thing set up right. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. So in a nutshell, I show up at the first race on that bike, and I'm just not in the best of moods. I'm kind of frustrated because I don't have enough time on it. Lance has been riding my competitions and riding this worked KCM that they took a four-stroke motor, put it in the two-stroke chassis. He's been qualifying for Supercross names. I mean, he's been riding. He's got so much time on his bike, and I'm like, this is going to be rugged. And it was rough, but we went out, gave him the run, you know, that he wanted. I think we actually I think we actually made a good impact that day. I think Lance realized that it was going to be a rough year just by the tone of his voice and the way he talked after it was over. It wasn't going to be an easy one. He he caught me the first moto right at the end because my bike wouldn't turn. The suspension on the front was so stiff that the bike would not turn. It would just push through every corner. So you're fighting a pushing bike. It's not handling. I'm just making it work. And I had to get through the weekend. So we get through the first moto. He catches me, catches me at the end and pulls away a little bit from me. And then second moto, I get to start again. I held him off till right near the end. I almost crash in a corner. He dives under me, takes the line, gets me. I just right back on him and raced him all the way to the finish line. And it was like, if he would have faltered, I would have passed him. And after the, you know, after the race, we, we talked and he was like, wow, you're riding good. And, you know, I was thirsty. I was hungry. I was ready. I want to win. I was like, this is going to happen. I'm going to prove a point. So then you go a week break, work on the bike a little bit more, suspension a little bit better, still not where I'm comfortable with it. And we go to Glen Helen. And Glen Helen, meanwhile, has this, there's this jump that Mike Healy, Jeff Emig, and a couple of us have just been messed around jumping it. But we jump it off to the side of the track, and it literally saves, like, three seconds. It was a big deal. And it was a big jump. It was 90 feet. And Glen Helen's my home track. I ride there all the time. I know the owner. I know Lori. I mean, they're just my best friends. And just, I just know it's, my, it's like being in your backyard. And I, little did I know, you know, that, that was going to be the last of my road, but it was not even that. It was that 
it just was going to be a pretty amazing day because not only is my dad going to be there, my little brother's going to be there, hasn't seen me raised in 20 plus years. Uh, my, some of my local friends and family from the local area were going to be there. It was going to be a pretty big event for me. So I got to go out there and I got to perform. So pressure was really high. And the day before we went out and, um, we rode the track. The TV was out there. They were doing interviews. I just ditched them. I didn't want anything to do. They wanted to interview me. I ditched that. I didn't feel like I wanted to talk. I was not having a good day. I didn't like the track. It was just something that was off on the track and I couldn't figure it out. So that said, coming to Sunday and I'm feeling that way going to Sunday. I couldn't sleep Saturday night. I just was off. I just didn't feel like the normal Mike Jones. And, uh, I drove out to the track that morning. We, you know, roll in. Russ has the bike out there looking cherry. All of our handouts just arrived. So we got our autograph stock. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. This is going to be rad. And, you know, I bust out all my new gear, all this stuff. And I'm like, let's get geared up and ready to go. I checked the track out a little bit. And the track was a lot different than the night before. And first practice out. I go out, and we had two practices that day. So I go out, and I always fight the track for a little bit. I don't just take off and go bone out and go as fast as I can. I just cruise around and stay out of the mud and just kind of look around. And uh, then, I'd, you know, then I'll walk in some laps. But I go around the first lap, and I get behind my buddy, Scott Myers. And coming up towards that jump, there's a section. It's like a downhill kind of section. And it was a really fast section into the sand left corner and a right-hander over that big jump that I, I crash on. And coming down that hill, stopped in front of me, and all of a sudden we noticed there's a bunch of whoopie dudes there that weren't there the day before. I just see him hit the binders. He's going way too fast. Hits the binders, goes head over heels, just bam, 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 bam. Meanwhile, I'm coming down, seeing that. I'm going to some stuff, and I just went right to the right edge of the track and kind of got my front wheel up on this ledge and rode up over it a little bit and slowed down while I watched him cartwheel. I was like, oh, this isn't good. So I ride a couple laps still, and I'm riding a little faster, getting a little faster, a little faster, and the practice is over. I go in, and they go, yeah, Scotty broke his collarbone. I was like, oh, no. So I was bummed. I was like, yeah, why did they do that? And I said, and then this jump needs to go, too, because somebody's going to get hurt on that. And that jump, I mean, somebody's going to do it, and they're going to they're gonna win the race today if they do that. But it's just the risk level was so high. I just I was pondering whether it was going to happen or not. I was like, I don't know if someone's going to do it or not. So anyways, in a nutshell, second practice comes around after I, you know, bitched and moaned about them taking it out, and I get around the track a few laps, and I'm following, like, Mike Healy, and he went, and he jumped it, and he jumped it off the side of the track, like, way off the side of the track. So I was like, oh, man, Healy just did that. I got to do it. So I kind of sized it up. Well, I come around, and I guess Larry Brooks just crashed trying to do it, and I didn't know that. They, they peeled him off. And I come around and I looked at it two or three times, short cut of the track, and I go, I'm doing it this time. And Russ, I just remember Russ in the berm giving me a thumbs up. You got it. And there's about a hundred people lined up along this thing, knowing that somebody's going to jump this thing, right? And so I come around the corner and I just set sail. Problem is, as I hit the, as I hit the face, I cross rutted and went straight. I was trying to jump to the right and it jumps me straight. I'm going, oh God, this is going to hurt. And meanwhile, the AMA official standing on the landing jump, getting ready to think, hey, we're going to stop you guys. There's none of this. You're not jumping this today, you guys. And here I am in the air. I'm going, okay, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. 
and I came down and the handlebars went right through my chest, just right through. And I was doing a flying W after that and the bike ran me over, mowed me down, it threw me into the ground, knocked me silly. And I woke up with my head just embedded in the dirt, but facing the jump. So I'm looking at the landing going, really? That's the jump? But instantaneously, something just didn't feel right. And I was like, I don't know what's going on here. Something doesn't feel right. I feel off a little bit. This is weird. And uh, it was like tingly. Everything was like tingly. And a guy, an off-duty fireman came right over and he's like, Mike, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, don't move me. I'm paralyzed. And he goes, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. He goes, okay. So meanwhile, I'm laying there. I got my shoulder ripped out of socket. I got all this weird emotions going through me going, I don't even know what to think right now. This is weird. And that's kind of up to that point. That was a weird situation. And I don't really know a lot about who was standing there unless they were in the pictures that I've seen that Don gave me. But it was a really weird come-to-God moment. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget certain moments that happened from there. I remember when they flipped me over, there's just pain was unbelievable. I had like fluid draining in my body that I couldn't tell what it was what was happening. I didn't know if I'm dying or something, internal injury. I didn't know. Um, Mike Healy came over, dropped his bike and just came over and was holding my hand, telling me everything was going to be all right. And I can just recall the tears dripping from his eyes down onto my face. But he was blocking the sun. So I just remember the sun was so bright and he stood over me blocking the sun. And it was just, there's moments like that that I remember. And then from there, it's just, everything was just kind of like, a nightmare. It was like, what just happened? First, you're, first you're on top of literally the world. You know, you're nothing can stop you. You're, you know, you're just invincible. And the next minute, you, you can't do anything. You're laying there, and God's going, "Hey, remember me? Remember me?" <laughs> and you're like, "Yeah, can you help me get out of this situation?" <laughs> because I don't like this. And I just remember, I remember all this stuff of like laying in the hospital bed and going, you know, this is really weird. I'd really like to go to Taco Bell right now, of all things. I'm all, I'd really like to go to Taco Bell, but I can't even sit up. I can't get up and I can't go anywhere. And so it was a really weird process that you go through in your brain. And being a racer, you don't think about quitting. You're just thinking about the challenge. You're thinking about what is the next challenge that I'm going to face? What's going to happen with this situation? What am I going to have to deal with? You know, and it's testing your faith. It's testing a lot of things, your relationship with your family and your wife and all of your friendships. It's everything comes surreal when this happens. And uh, I'll never, I'll just never forget it. I mean, little things like um, when they first go, hey, we're going to sit you up. This is seven days in the hospital, and they're finally going to sit me up for the first time after surgery. And uh, they go, okay, we're going to put fans on you because most of the time people just pass out. I'm like, oh, Really? This isn't fun. And they sat me up, and I'll never forget the weirdest feeling I ever felt. It was like I sat up, and all I can remember was sitting on, feeling like I'm sitting on a bowling ball, and all I could judge things from was my shoulders and neck. Like I, I had no sense of balance or anything. I was like, this is weird. Sitting on a, a dock, like a hospital bed, and I felt like I was 80 feet up in the air looking down at Empire State Building or something. You know, I was like, whoa, this is freaky. And you just couldn't even hold yourself up. And they put a fan on you and you're like, oh, dude, 
I can't even sit here. I'm sweating so bad for like two minutes, I think, was all I sat there. I was like, this is going to be hard. <laughs> this is going to test me. This is going to test who Mike Young is. I thought I was, I thought motocross taught me how to be a tough guy and motocross taught me to be this, that, and the other. Motocross prepared me for this, but it was nothing compared to what I was going to go through. So it was interesting. And that's a whole other story, the rest of that story. <laughs> and, and it's a very interesting one. And thank you for sharing it with us. That was uh, like uh, extremely detailed and um, uh, very heartfelt. And uh, I know it's it can't be easy uh, to to uh, reaccount stuff like that. I'm sure uh, from what you can remember, you you've replayed it in your head uh, numerous times. Um, from uh, from the ashes of that uh, rose uh, uh, a different thunder, uh, something uh, uh, from a business standpoint. Um, Big Gun Exhaust, tell us a little bit about uh, that brainchild and uh, how it was developed. No worries. Um, yeah, things did change. What was really cool is, uh, you know, we built relationships and friendships with a lot of people. And uh, there are two gentlemen that, that didn't want to see me sit there and didn't want to see me, you know, waste away, because I had no idea what was going to happen. But the first thing, before I even say that, uh, the industry and the people in this industry are just amazing. The support that they gave us was amazing. They uh, they all came together uh, through my management, Tony Strangio. They all came together. Um, so many people. I, I can't even name them all, but so many people came together, including Chaparral and all the riders, and they put together a fundraiser. They raised so much money. I mean, it was you know, probably like $150,000, which would buy me at that time probably a year and a half worth of, you know, life. And I just bought a brand new house when this happened. So I was a month into living in this brand new house. So it was, it was a wake up call. But the industry itself, I was so thankful, so grateful for every person in it. And to this day, even a lot of people are on my Facebook and they keep in touch with me. And I'm just grateful to all of them. I thank them all again. Um, but Don and Dale, they came to me. And I was just at home, and they said, we want to talk to you. Okay. So they came down, and they're like, we want to start an exhaust company with you. You know force chokes. You know exhaust. We think that's going to be the next raise. It's going to be something that's going to be big. And they go, your knowledge of it, you've been doing it for so long, and your Vertimati has such a good exhaust, and you helped them make that. What do you think? I'm like, all right, maybe we could do something. So put some thought into it, and you know, lo and behold, they go, all right, well, we need a name. Well, my 1993, when I was riding for American Honda, Honda built me a one-off factory Honda. We called it the, the M1628. Or it was a, yeah, it was an M1628. And anyways, it was a trick, trick piece. Uh, it was it one of a kind and it was, uh, it was a cool four stroke. It had, the thing was, was awesome. But anyways, all the effort we put into that thing, we went out and won a bunch of races, but we didn't have to bunch because it had too much power and ripped the chain right off the sprocket. But we uh, we let the magazine write it. I think it was Dirt Rider Magazine, Tom Webb, and they wrote. We tested the Mike Young's XR Big Gun XR 628, or the Big Gun they called it. I think is what it was. And um, I just go, man, that's a cool name. And I asked him, I go, hey, would it be okay to to use that name? And he goes, yeah, go right ahead. He goes, that was your nickname. It was either Young Gun or Big Gun at the time. So he goes, just yeah. be Big Gun. And I was like, okay. So anyway, so we ran the, we called a big gun. And so, yeah, we started out, we just wanted to be a four-stroke performance pipe with a muffler because nobody had mufflers back then. Everybody over here had megaphones. 
and a muffler gave you a big, broader, smoother power band and a little quieter. So we brought out a Hoosberg pipe, like right off the bat, and it was a copy of my old Vertimati pipe, and it was amazing. That's what I used when I raced my bike. FMS built it for me, and since I had the rights to it, they said, go right ahead and build it. So I built it in-house myself. So in a nutshell, we did that, and then we started with that first Yamaha, the YZ400, and we built a like a three-piece stepped pipe right off the get-go for that, and it was awesome. And uh, we got great press on it, and that's what got the ball rolling. But, yeah, it started big gun and ran that all the way until 2009. And in 2009, I just, I was just really tired and really needed a change of pace and just really looking to do – I just needed a break. I was at that point in life where I was getting divorced and life was changing for me. My health wasn't as, as good as it was, and I just needed a break. And I said, you know what, I am going to step back and – sell this because I can't operate it the way I need to operate it the way I am as a person right now. So I need to step back and, uh, and let it go. So I did, I stepped back and, uh, gave up on it and sold it to a friend of mine and, and lo and behold, it's still around today. They're still making it happen. And I'm proud of those guys for keeping it going. I mean, I think my guys that were with me all those years, we put in so much work and I'm so thankful to every single one of my employees that we had because we we rocked and they did a great job. I was so thankful to the distributors like to the Rocky and Marshall Distributing for having belief in us and uh, and and uh, belief in me and my abilities and it was a, it was a blessing, a huge blessing. And yeah, I knew there was something out there that I was being called to do. And you know, I was like, you know, I love the industry and I don't want to leave it, but I just needed to change for a little bit. Absolutely, and uh, you'd mentioned um, the uh, the moment that uh, like that basically uh, put you in a position to uh, to take on something like this was uh, a very um, uh, re- religious experience for you. Looking up and uh, and uh, kind of um, uh, to asking asking uh, the Lord to uh, kind of help you from your situation. Um, tell us a little bit about your faith and uh, the role that it plays in your life. And uh, uh, as I know, uh, you were a big help t- to me today uh, on uh, what proved to be a rather tough one. Um, you're, uh, t- tell us a little bit about your faith. Ah, uh, that's that's the that's the best. That's the most awesome thing. I love to talk about. It. Love our motocross experience, our motocross chats, but talking about our faith and stuff is, is even is even greater it's, that's that's where I get my joy I appreciate you asking me this um, you know I, I I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all and uh, struggled with that I didn't have any clue there was even church when I was a little kid uh, thank God for my grandmother my late grandma she uh, she took me to, uh, to a Protestant church back in the day and introduced me to church and you know, back then it was like you go to church and you fall asleep. You know, it was a sleepy church. And as a kid, as you could probably recall, it's like church was boring, you know, like whatever. I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but she planted the seed. And that's all that God asked her to do is plant the seed. And so, you know, in my childhood, it was, uh, it was 1980, uh, let's see, it was 1986, 85, 86, when I started, or it was 84 actually when it started. So 84, I just, I was struggling as a youth. I was 14 years old and I was struggling. I didn't, I was rebelling. I was starting to get really bad grades. I just didn't even want to ride my dirt bike. I would go and drain the gas out of it. I was just being a bad kid. Got in some trouble 
and uh, got in some trouble that wound me up uh, in a position where I had to go to court. And I was going to either serve time in juvenile court or juvenile hall, or I was going to walk and do some, some uh, community service. And right then, I was like, there has to be a God, man. There has to be a God. And if my friend has been laying in sixth period this groundwork going, man, you got to come to this Bible study. It's at Rawls House, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. You guys are crazy. And uh, so I ended up... Um, praying before I went down to the judge and the judge let me off and he goes, you're going to do some community service. You're going to find a church or somewhere to do that. And I'm like, church? Okay. That's cool. And, or YMCA or somewhere. So I'm like, all right. So I go, I start doing that. And, uh, meanwhile, I'm like, all right, I got to check this church thing out. So the guys invited me to the church, to the Bible study. It's in the you know, gentleman's front, uh, front of his house. And it's inside his, uh, like it's in this living room, I guess. And so we're sitting on the couch, and I'm like, he's saying the sermon, you know, he's telling the sermon about how God accepts you, who you are, right here, right now, he'll forgive you of all your sins, he'll wash you clean, you know, I know what you're going through, you know, and da-da-da-da, I'm like, are you serious? Did someone tell him I was coming? You guys totally told him I was coming, didn't you? And he had no idea who I was, so I'm like, this is really weird, and I talked to him afterwards, and he goes, well, I'll do an altar call with you if you'd like, and if you'd like to accept the Lord. I go, you know what? Let me think about this. You know, let me see where I'm at. And I'm just like, that was just too freaky. So I go back the next week, and I go to the Bible study again, and I'm like, he's talking to me. Dude, who is ratting me out? Like, who's telling him all this stuff about me, you know? Because somebody's telling something, but I'm not telling anybody this stuff. And I, I'm all, that's God. That is God telling me that I need to pay attention here. So I gave my Lord, I gave my life to the Lord right then and there and became a Christian. That was like 1985, and I was living a good Christian life. I struggled, though. My dad and I would have really big battles. My dad didn't like the whole church thing. He thought it was taking me away from my racing and away from my training, and, and it kind of upset him, and so he and I had really, really big battles. We would battle on the way to the track, battle on the way back, and it got kind of out of hand, and I was just like, oh, this is not good. So I was up and down, up and down, but I lived a really good Christian life. And then I moved out of my dad's house in, in 88 and I started living on my own. And when I did that, I fell away from church like I should have. I started rebelling and not being a good guy. And it was really crazy because right before my accident, you know, I was living this Christian life. I was playing Christian, you know, I was saying, oh, I go to church and I do this, that, and the other, and I pray, whatever. But I'm not walking the walk. I'm not living, I'm not living like I'm supposed to. I was just living in the world. You know, I didn't know what being a Christian was all about. And uh, when I, on the night before I went to the uh, the track and had my accident, I was just really struggling. And my soul was struggling. I was struggling my heart because I know it's right. I know what I need to be doing. I know I need to be putting God first. I know God needs to be the center of everything for me. And it wasn't. You know, in my marriage, in my life, the way I had lived, I, I deserved everything that I was getting. You know, my sin was, was coming out clear. And uh, it was one of those things where when I hit the ground and had a come-to-Jesus moment, the light went on. And I realized that, you know, our sin creates, creates us. And we create these situations. I can't sit there. Everybody always goes, why did you not blame God? Why did you not blame God? I said, because it wasn't God. It was me. It was my sin. It was my shortcomings. It was me falling. And I thank God for God's grace because he picked me up every time and gave me another chance 
But this was his way of getting my attention. And what was crazy about all that was is it took from 97, slowly but surely, until three or four, no, about four years ago, till I finally realized what this whole thing was all about. It took 18, almost, eight, you know, almost 18 years. It took like 16, 15 years for me to finally, what was it, 13? Hold on. Yeah, it was 13, 14 years it took me to finally realize what God was trying to say to me. He was trying to get my attention, trying to tell me that there's more to life than just being a super or a superstar motocross racer or the coolest guy out there or the nicest guy, the track or, you know, the guy with the coolest pipe. There was ways to help other people, to give other people life that are having a hard time, that have gone through these circumstances. And so I went to a ministry school and just graduated a few months ago. And, you know, I'm not going to claim I know the Bible better than anybody, but I can claim one thing that Jesus loves us. We're all sinners. We all fall short. He's got his arms wide open for us. He's just there no matter what we've done. He'll accept us in at any time. All we've got to do is ask him. And his grace abounds oh, amazingly. And we all can be used what all oh, right where we are with what we know with who we are he can use us right here right now and i never knew that i go i gotta go to school i gotta do this so god can use me no he can use me right here and right now and it's been amazing so i i vowed to god that you know what i'm gonna i'm i'm a sinner i'm a human being i fall short every day but i'm gonna live the rest of my life the best i can to help my fellow brothers and sisters and I'm not going to preach to people. If you, you know, they don't want to hear it. They don't need to hear it. You know, if they want to hear it, they can come ask me. But I'm going to live my life as an example of what Christ has done by giving me this new life and new opportunity, new hope. Um, and I'm going to live it that way. And I'm going to be that role model to the world. And the best I can, I'm going to fall short, just like everybody else. But my ultimate goal with all this, I feel that I'm called in the ministry. And I feel that God's calling me to go and tell my testimony. And I have been struggling with that for a long time. I've had fear, which is from the devil, and I hate that, but it is. And I've had a lot of fear, and I've, I've had those moments where he's like, oh, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. But God helped me overcome so much as it is right now that I am good enough because I have him in my life. And with him on my side, I can do anything. And I want to go and tell the world, just like Romans 28. It tells us to go and to tell people about Christ. And that's the Great Commission. And that's what I feel I'm called to do. And people like yourself, you know, we all struggle every day. There's not one person out there that can tell me that they're not hurting right now or they're not having a hard time. You know, stuff like what you're going through. There are people just like you that I talk to every day. And I feel for those people. And it's my, I feel accountable to be able to give you some life through, you know, give you Jesus through my life and maybe help you to get through these times by using God, you know, and using the Bible, using scripture. People get all scared. They're like, oh, you're all religious. And no religion. Religion is man-made. And you know what? You can believe in that if you want. You know, whoever, you know, listens to this podcast, they can listen. I have no problem with them. I love them just like I love everybody else. But religion was man-made. I believe that Christ calls us to have a personal relationship with him. I don't think there's any strings that you need to go and do this or you have to do this or do that. He tells you what to do right in the Bible. You just follow what he tells you to do, have your personal relationship. 
you don't have, you and I are having church right now. We don't have to go to some building that church, but it's good to support a church because a church can help your neighborhood, your area, and it can bring people in that might need to hear the word. That's huge. But, um, man, it's just been a blessing. And I appreciate the opportunity to even talk about it. And I just continue to pray that God can, can work through me and keep me lifted up. You know, it's like I told you earlier, I've had some really rough times last few weeks. I haven't felt good. My body is just, it's very difficult, my body being, you know, the way it is and some of the injuries I have. I wake up and I don't feel very good. And I have a really hard time feeling good and putting a smile on my face sometimes. But I prayed about it. And, you know, I believe in what I pray. And I feel that God healed me yesterday. And today I woke up a brand new person. And it's just, it's amazing. The power that he gives you when you really give yourself to him is unbelievable. I think anything is possible when you have God on your side. And you know what? I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying seeing these young kids that are giving God all the glory these days. I mean, I, I've seen like, you know, Jerem, uh, what is it? Uh, the Martin brothers. I've seen uh, Cooper Webb. You see even people like as high up as number five, Ryan Dungey. They give all the glory to God when they win these races. And you know what? That is so neat to see that resurgent uh, of the Christian movement moving through the sport and seeing God work in these kids and through their lives. And we all have a story. You have a story. Everyone listening has a story. And God can use that story so mightily, just like he has his story, which is the Bible. That story could change a person's life. Let's use that story to benefit somebody, you know, or benefit one person, benefit a million people for, for that matter. So anyways, I'm going to do my best to continue, uh, you know, to continue moving forward and uh, seeing what God's got for us. That's, uh, that, that's extremely heartfelt. And uh, I can hear the passion in your voice. Um, of all things that you spoke about uh, throughout this podcast, um, your, your, your voice uh, uh, took on a, a whole new um, a whole new vibrancy through that. And uh, I can really feel um, the, the sincerity in your voice and the sincerity in your heart that, uh, um, that, that you have uh, given your life, your life to the, your savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's an important thing. I feel like uh, um, it took me a, a really long time to uh, um, acknowledge any, any type of, uh, of, of higher power, uh, uh, God, um, but uh, I'll share with you um, one one story that uh, I kind of solidified it, and it, I had to, I had to look back on it to see that that, that that's what it was. Is um, uh, I don't have any formal training in in, in doing podcasts. Uh, I've I've every single one that I've done, I, I've done them off of just uh, trial and error, uh, trying to get mileage and experience to, to become better at this, but. Um, how I first got a, a microphone in my hand was uh, I was dealing with a, uh, a shoulder dislocation from a, a Saturday race, uh, but I had uh, my, my, my bike was with a friend of mine, uh, so I had to stay for the Sunday, and they didn't have an announcer. And um, I figured that I, I, I'd probably uh, know a few of the names and stuff like that. I didn't know if I'd be any good, and uh, um, that that shoulder injury ended up plaguing me uh, and keeping me off the motorcycle quite a bit over the the years that would follow that one. And um, that day, I uh, all of a sudden just became very gifted with the microphone. It just 
I was able to call the races, know the riders, make it interesting to those who, were, who would listen to me. And it was as if someone looked down on me that day and said, you don't get time to learn how to be good at this. You don't get any training. You're good at this starting now. <laughs> it's awesome. That's how you work. Yes, that's how you work. And people don't get that. They, they don't get it. A lot of people don't. Some people do. Don't get me wrong. Some people do get it. But some people don't get that. They, they just don't see it. They're too callous, you know, whatever it is. They're hard, too hard, whatever it is. He can use that talent. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes a little breaking to get you to see the talent. Like sometimes he has to put you through something like that. And that's how he gets your attention. I mean, sometimes you've got to drop people literally on their faces a few times before they actually come around. And that's every one of us. There's a time and a place for every single one of us to find that. You know, one time, one place. I mean, I have atheists. I had a father-in-law, or an ex-father-in-law, late father-in-law. He was amazing, amazing, amazing. And um, he was uh, he was atheist. He wasn't a father-in-law. I'm sorry. He was my mom's. He was my mom's husband. So anyways, he was like a parent to me. And he was atheist. He didn't believe in Christ at all. And just through our lives and showing him things, he opened up a little bit by encouraging him to give church a try. And atheist still believes in something. They sometimes don't know what, but they do believe in something. And he came around. And you know what? I think it's, we all have a time. We might come young, we might come old. We all have a time. But either way, God loves us as who we are, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. And he's going to put you in the places, sometimes that are uncomfortable, and sometimes he's going to put you in places you're really comfortable. But he's going to use you one way or another. And putting a microphone in front of you, what better than that? I mean, geez, that's huge right there. That's huge. You know, that's a... That's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. And for you to pick it up and do that is, is even better because you're following his will. You're not following your will. You're following his will. And that's where, you know, we get it all wrong. We always lead ourselves down these paths and we go, yeah, this is God's will. And you're going down the path and at the end it's destruction. You're wondering why. Well, it's because we're following our will. Most people don't. They're not confident in waiting on God and hearing God. They want to do this on their own. And unfortunately, that leads us to destruction. And that, I think, had a big big play in my life. Going back to the racing, I was in control all the way up until the moment I was laying on the ground and he told me he was in control. I didn't realize it. Does that make sense? It's like, we're motocross racers. We're, there's nothing's going to stop us. I can ride through any pain. And then he goes, no, I'm in control. Let me show you. And then he showed me. And some people are like, ah, that's a harsh way to look at it. But no, sometimes that's where you need to be. You've got to get off your high horse and get humbled and realize that we're not guaranteed anything he's given us today. But we don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. You know, tomorrow might not come. So make the best of it today. I have a good friend of mine that just got paralyzed. I won't name his name. But he's a guy that... I pray for every day, and I pray that this guy comes around because, you know, he said, he goes, he goes, how's Jesus treating you right now? And I'm like, he's treating me great. I'm here, right? And he goes, oh, he starts laughing. And he goes, well, I'm not doing good in Jesus' eyes right now, but it's okay. He goes, 
I'll make it right with him one of these days, maybe down the end of the road, you know? And I go, what if that end of the road comes before the end of the road and you didn't know it was coming? How are you going to get it right then? And he didn't even, he has no answer. He never can answer that. And I just sit there and go, you know, you're almost like not the smartest guy, but yet you are a pretty smart guy in the world, but you're not really a smart guy when it comes to this. Wouldn't you rather give it the shot? Because if it does come, you know, you never know. He didn't know he was going to be in Baja, Mexico, riding on just a fun ride and be down by La Paz and about, you know, 50 miles from La Paz. Didn't know he was going to crash and break his back and get paralyzed, did he? No. And then, you know, his life was going to be crazy, stressful, and, you know, gnarly the next couple of years while he learned how to live again. No, he didn't know that. But you know what? He has learned it now. But now, you know, some seeds have been planted. Let's pray that he comes around because... That's almost stupidity when you neglect God, you know, you push him away. So, so I'm, gr- I'm glad that we, uh, we've had this chat. I'm glad we got to talk about stuff. And I got to hear your story, too, because that's important. I think that's the most important thing that we do in our lives. It doesn't matter how many championships you win. It's how many lives have you changed, you know, and all changed for the better for Christ. You know, that's all I think that matters at the end of the day. I used to be all about winning championships. Now about saving souls. Amen. Well, Mike Young, the young gun himself, uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, The the last uh, couple of things I had for you, if you still have a short bit of time, uh, was um, if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your relationship with uh, with David Bailey as you uh, uh, were were racing uh, bicycles with him. I know that was a big part of your life. Um, as well as, uh, if, if you had any recollection and you could tell me any stories of, uh, Dr. Dave Myers and of course, uh, Scott Myers, uh, <laughs> Dave and Scott, oh, they're such good people. Oh, uh, well, David Bailey, uh, first off, he's, he's, uh, an amazing individual. I mean, that man is somebody I always looked up to. And, uh, had the, uh, had the luxury of staying before I got paralyzed in 90, it was 94. I got to stay in David's house back in, uh, Ashton, Virginia, where he lived at the track of Lake Sugar Tree for a White Brothers, uh, East Coast Four Stroke World Championship. And, um, it was amazing just to wake up. There was deer in the front yard. It was just, it was amazing. And to be in my icon's house was like even cooler. But I was there the day that he, David got paralyzed. I was just turned pro, and uh, I was on a Kajiva 125, as we talked about earlier, the big, super fast Kajiva Italian bike. And um, I was sitting up on this hill with, like, Mike Healy and Doug Dubach, or I think AJ Whiting, and we were watching the, the 250 practice. And, yeah, he just came around and wadded up, and it, was, it didn't look good. And I was like, oh, that just wrecked my whole day. And then to find out that he got paralyzed was even worse. Because as a racer, you don't think about those things. You don't think about getting paralyzed. You never want to even cross your mind. Well, I hadn't seen David and didn't even know him. And then I got paralyzed. And I reached out to him, or he reached out to me. I can't recall exactly. And said, hey, man, if you ever need anything, let me know. And I'm like, wow, David Bailey. And, uh... I didn't know he was going through some tough times. I had no idea. You know, I'm thinking life's great for him. He's David Bailey. Everything's good. And he was going through his own struggles. You know, he was going through his own issues, his own battles. He was going through his own demons and stuff. And 
he was trying to find his peace and, and, uh, he didn't know God. He didn't care about God, nothing. He didn't want to talk about that. And, uh, it was kind of crazy and it kind of like turned me off where I, I was hanging out with him for a little bit and I was like, I don't really want to hang out with him anymore. And so I pulled away for quite a while and, uh, he ended up getting a really bad, uh, pressure sore and years later and he, um, he was in really bad shape. And literally, yeah, he was uh, laid up for almost six months on his stomach. Yeah, almost died. Yeah, he almost died. I have pictures of David on his deathbed, completely, like, literally almost dead. Like, he was ready to throw in the towel. But meanwhile, David found Christ. David was reading his Bible every single day. When I went down to see David, he was not the same David Bailey that I used to hang out with and talk to and stuff. He was a completely born again, David Bailey, and he was on fire for God. He read the Bible through a bunch of times. He could quote scripture. He was like, became my real true hero. Now Now he's my hero. So we were sitting on the couch one day. I was going through my divorce and uh, this was 2000, I think it was 2009. We were both becoming fatties and we're like, this just blows and we need to do something about it. And I told him, I said, let's go race Iron Man. And he's like, you're stupid. He's all not doing that again. He goes, that is so stupid. It's so hard, so torturous. We are not doing Iron Man. He goes, let's just go ride our bikes. And I'm all, no, we're doing Iron Man. And he goes, whatever. Let's just go ride our bikes. So we go down and ride our bikes. And we thought we were all tough stuff. And we rode 15 miles. And we were fat cows. And it was me and David, David and myself and Brian Manley. And Brian just smoked us. We're like, oh, my God, dude, this is not good. So he goes, you still want to do Iron Man? I go, yep, we're doing Iron Man. we got to have some kind of a goal because we're just not in a good place. Like I was really depressed and down, and I wanted to end my life. Thank God I have two amazing children that God gifted me that uh, I'm blessed with. If it wasn't for them, I probably would have took my life. So after that, we, you know, we start riding, we start biking, we get some new bikes, we start training our butts off. And literally the day before the Ironman race, I was in the best shape of my life and I had to show off and I popped a tendon in my arm and it was the worst pain ever. And I had to nurse it the next day and just barely made it through the race. It was frustrating. I got, I got smoked. Well, I should have done so good. I got smoked and it was a reality check But David and I shared story after story. We built friendship that's unbelievable and we still train to this day together and you know, David's got, I can't say what David's got going on, but David's got some pretty amazing things coming. And, uh, he's, he's grown. I mean, we talk about God every day and about what's going on in the world and the end times. And, you know, if this guy becomes president, this probably will happen and this, that and the other. And we get into these kind of, you know, conversations that have nothing to do with motorcycles, but he has the best motorcycle stories ever. But he tells me a story that to this day, makes me perk up when I'm having a hard time. And it was really cool. It was 1993 and I'm uh, riding for Honda, all JT gear. JT was always a dream to get a JT sponsorship was like a dream as a motocross racer because every fast guy had JT, you know? And in 93, they signed me and said, Hey, we want to put you on our stuff. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm riding factory Honda and I'm riding, you know, JT. What could be any better than that? And so, in that story, I had to tell the story because it's funny. But he, um, he was down at JT, 
and the guys are like, hey, we're going to head over to the commotion by the ocean and watch uh, one of our guys. His name's Mike Young. He goes, Mike Young, who's that? He goes, dude, he's pretty good. And they're like, okay, whatever. I'll go check him out. He goes, yeah, I don't even know who this guy is. But okay, let's go check it out. So they get there and they get him up to the to the, uh, this corner at Carlsbad. And um, I won both motos this day. I had some huge competition, but I still won both motos. It was awesome. And uh, he, they get him all the way up to the side of the track. And he says the only thing he remembers is he's seen, he's never in his life seen somebody come around this corner and shred it as good as I did on my Honda. <laughs> he said it blew his mind. He goes, who's this guy? And he goes, that's Mike Young right there. And they goes, oh, my gosh, he's all, that is insane. That guy, I got to talk to him. And so that's how I actually met David. I met him right then and, like, right then and there. I met David Daly, and that's when, you know, I first met him. And then a few years later is when I got hurt. So it was just, it was a cool thing to hear your idol say that he's never seen somebody go so fast around that corner, let alone the track, on a team thing. He thought, I don't think I could even go around the corner that fast. So it, was, it was a pretty cool compliment. But uh, anyway, the Myers family, oh, let's talk about them really quick. So the Myers family, the, um, the Myers family, just Scotty and his dad, I've known them for many years. And I met them actually, it was really crazy. I really got to know Scott really well. I knew him from local, like CMC, Golden State, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I knew he was a NorCal dude. And, you know, he was, he was pretty fast, and I was like, yeah, he's, you know, he gave me a run for my money many times, and he probably beat me a few times, you know, so I, I don't recall him all, but we had some battles, and he got faster and faster and faster, but he uh, he started racing that Mickey Thompson stuff with us, and he was a pretty competitive dude. He was one of those guys I always had to I had to think about it. I was like, man, I got to make sure I get by Myers. I got to get by him quick, you know, and he give, he'd, give me, uh, he'd give me an elbow here and there, and he's he was awesome, but they were the nicest guys, like the nicest guys. Like you need anything. Oh, his dad was over there helping you. You know, his dad's like, what do you need? What do you need? He's like, you need something? And I was like, why are you helping your competitor? He's like the coolest dude. And I just, I always remember his wife, you know, before he was even married, he's with the same girl forever. And his wife's beautiful as well. But they were just such a good family. They were so fun to race those races with. I have such vivid memory of it. And it was hard because when I got the four-stroke stuff with him, I really wasn't the same guy because the pressure on me to do good was so much greater. And I had pressure because I had to make money to be able to pay my bills. So I wasn't the friendly, happy-go-lucky guy that I was when I was racing and everything was taken care of. I was stressed out, so I didn't get to really hang and talk to him. But it was a really pivotal moment that I remember when he broke his collarbone that day, because Scott was riding really good and had this really trick ATK. And I was so stoked for him to get out there. He was making some money. He was having fun. And it was just, it was like a great deal to have him back racing. Against me. Cause it's been a while. I think he went and raced off road for a while and got away from the moto scene. And then that kind of brought him back around to moto again. So I, to this day, I don't see him enough. I don't get together with him enough. I'd really need to reconcile and, not even reconcile, just communicate and hang out and talk to him because he's just such good people. So, and that was just, like I said, amazing, amazing. Give you the shirt off his back. And he always remember one thing. He always had his apron on 
Anytime he was at the racetrack, he had the work apron on. Always had his work apron. I'll never forget that. That was so funny. So he was the coolest <laughs> dude. Coolest dude. But anyways, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. There you go. And uh, via text, um, a request from Don Schneider himself, who's texting me during this interview. Uh, he asked, uh, before I let you go, uh, you tell tell I, I, that I ask you about Grayson Hart, uh, the oldest, uh, the oldest, fastest rider we have in the Four Stroke Nationals. Oh, dude. You know, Grayson, I didn't get to know super well either, but he is a good guy. You know, he... I think, you know, doesn't he have the, the motorcycle shop? I think he has a motorcycle I shop so, now. Yes. Yeah, I think yep. he has the he has that motorcycle dealership. And I never knew that. And I called him at Big Gun one day, and he's like, "You know who I am?" And I was like, "No." And he said, "And I was like, oh my gosh, dude, he was see, he came in late in the four show. He came in right. I only raced with him, I think, a couple times, like maybe the end of. No, I only raced with him basically one time." And that was at the uh, that was at the last race I raced at Cottonwood when uh, Lance and I had our battle in '97. The only time I actually got to race with him, I knew who Grayson was because he was a really fast guy. I think it's from like Reno or somewhere in that area or north or northwest. So that's like in in uh, the Oregon area. He was very fast up in that area, I think. And the kid was so nice, though, so cool, and just man, he was a good ambassador for. The, the series when Don took it over and he, you know, he supported it, did really well. And he was just one of those guys that you enjoyed racing with. Just a good, good, good person all in all. And I mean, that's thing. Don had a lot of guys like that. He had like a family and that's like my dad had the same thing. We just had a family of guys that would just show up and just, you know, we had Johnny Campbell. We had Jamie Campbell. Johnny Campbell's what? 10 times, 11 times. Baja 1000 winner. He was my teammate when my first year off-roading. It was like... Spud Walters. Was, yeah, it was Spud Walters. Who you'll never forget Spud Walters. You know, Spud, was, Spud was amazing. So he had so many guys go through. He had the lefties go through the camp. I mean, so many guys. So, but Grayson was one of those guys who'll stand out. He's just a good, good, good dude. And, uh, you know, just fun to be around, fun to talk to. And I wish I could have gotten to know these guys a little bit better than, than I did, you know? Hundred uh, percent. There's. We always wish. Uh, like we. Uh, there's so many great people in motocross. There's so many great characters. There's. Um, I, I honestly believe uh, the those who race motocross are are cut from a special cloth, and uh, the the kinship that's developed through uh, risking it all for a plastic trophy and um, just that that rush of adrenaline that from that very first day. I think that's. That's why when you leave the track, it uh, doesn't matter if you know someone or not know someone, if you make any type of eye contact, there's always either a head nod or a wave because it's just almost like a mutual respect and acknowledgement that uh, we're all out here doing what we love and it's dangerous and we risk it and we love it and this is what makes us tick and the only one, the only people who understand us are our are, are peers and uh, and that's what's really cool about it yeah no you're right i mean motocross is a it's a small niche community and i mean there's just you know we're a very tight community everyone knows everybody and and it's uh you know you're you're friends with them i mean you're friends off the track you can't be on the track but you know off the track and everybody's there for each other and it's a beautiful sport it teaches people so much i just you know i wish the sport had better perks 
for more people. You know, I wish that there was better programs all the way up the board for the youth all the way up. I wish there was, it's getting that way. I wish there was more money. You know, we, we draw from a small pool of money and it all comes from the same place where we're feeding our whole industry feeds our industry. And it's, we have to have more outside help and outside money. Uh, there also needs to be some people need to put in place better strategies as far as out strategies. They need to have better planning for these kids because people like myself, I didn't plan to get hurt. I had nothing saved. I was living month to month, you know. You don't know what to do with your money except spend it and buy things. And it's like I really wish there was somebody out there that would step up that would start a, you know, maybe a, a program to where you got somebody that goes, okay, I am going to teach this guy how this is a business. So it's not a game anymore. It's not a joke. This is a business. Racing is a business. You have to market yourself. By marketing yourself, these are the things you're going to do. This is how you're going to get sponsors and how you're going to treat your sponsors and respect your sponsors. It's not just put your hand out and get free product. And if you win this weekend, they're going to love you. If you didn't do good, they're not going to love you. It's all about what are you doing for them, not what you're doing for yourself. And I wish there would be a school to teach guys about that because I think even with a lot of these top motocross racers, they don't understand that this is business and that it's not about just winning. It's about promoting, marketing the people that you ride for. I see it better now. It's a little bit better than you see. And then have training academies. You can put these guys through training and then have a retirement program set up to where, look, when you retire at 27, 28 years old in motocross, you got a whole, you know, life ahead of you. What are you going to do? Work at Taco Bell? If that's what you want to do, great. Why don't you use what you've learned to, to help others maybe learn or maybe get back a little bit or invest your money in these things? There's a few guys that have done that that have done very well, but some 90% of these guys, they haven't done that with their money. It's like they get out of motocross and they're like, uh-oh, i got to go get a job. So I'd love to see that, but I, we have a great sport. It can always be better. There's always ways we can fix things and make it better. But, uh, you know, one of these days we'll get there. But right now it's, uh, it's still a fun sport to watch. There's some great racing going on, and these young kids that are coming through are pretty fast. And uh, we're, uh, we're going to have a good motocross nation team. 100%. We're looking forward to that this weekend. Uh, Mike, I, as I said earlier, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, I, I thank you for taking uh, a good portion of your evening to speak with me and, and discuss uh, your career and your beliefs and uh, all things important to you uh, in life and motocross. And uh, I need you to make me two promises. I need you to promise me that you'll always continue to be who you are and, uh, and, and continue to, uh, and do great things in, in the best of your ability. And I need you to promise to come back on the Big MX radio podcast show to, uh, discuss, uh, more four stroke nationals, more motocross, and, uh, maybe even get Don Schneider on at the same time. I know there would be endless stories. Yeah, that'd be great. Brad, I really, really, truly appreciate it. I know you're going through a lot right now and, uh, and keep you in my thoughts and prayers. And, uh, we definitely, uh, and continue this friendship for many years to come and i've appreciated the opportunity to take an old guy like me with some racing stories and bring him back to life well, i appreciate you my friend uh um you have yourself a great evening and uh once again thank you very much no thank you guys and thank you everyone who's listening today thank you for listening to the big mx podcast brought to you by x brand goggles be sure to check out our archive for episodes you may have missed. Check out our website at BigMXRadio.com for more content.